Hello everyone and welcome to episode 517 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses, and I'm your host. We talk about all things to do with the world of writing, publishing, and how to succeed as an author or writer. Or maybe you've joined us because you're an avid reader and you want to hear from the authors on the show. Regardless of why you've joined us, welcome. So I've had an awesome week because I've heard from so many graduates about their publishing successes. There must be something in the air, I think. There's Luke Rutledge, whose debut novel, A Man in His Pride, will be out at the end of January, so very soon. He's done several courses at the Australian Writers' Centre, including Novel Writing Essentials. I just got an advanced copy and I cannot wait to read it. There's also Karen Main, who is releasing Lenny Marks Gets Away With Murder, So, and that's coming out shortly after Luke's. Um, Karen did creative writing stage one and I can't wait to read her novel as well it looks like a cracker and of course graduates of our freelance writing courses are also kicking goals like Vicky who had a great article published in the Guardian last week on aging stereotypes it was such a well-written and well-researched piece Vicky's an excellent writer and she's also done several courses at the Australian Writer Centre and that's just to name a few I just love seeing our graduates succeed. It's nothing makes me happier. But now let's move on to my writing tip for this week. A big problem that many writers face with their stories when they're writing fiction is that their characters aren't quite really doing anything. Like they're sitting and thinking and stuff is happening around them or, you know, they're lying in bed and the alarm goes off and they wake up but they're not the ones actually driving the action. Of course, there are some parts of your story where thinking and feeling might need to happen and your inner monologue needs to come through. But in order to to move your story forward, your characters need to be doing things. And you might think, well, thinking and feeling are doing things. Well, yes, okay, in a way, thinking and feeling are verbs, but they're not really acting on anything else. They're not affecting much else if you're just sitting there and stuff's going around in your head, right? Because no one knows what's going on in your head. So this is where transitive verbs can help. Now, if you can't remember what a transitive verb is, those are the verbs that require an object. For example, you don't really just say, I take. You have to take something. I take the apple. I take the train. I take the last spaceship to leave planet Earth. A transitive verb will usually affect or change the object in some way, the apple, the train, you know, the earth. So if you're stuck wondering what to do with your character, if they're just sitting around thinking too much, look up a list of transitive verbs and see what you can do to use one of them instead. Okay, so that's a quick tip that might help you, especially if you've got a a character who (laughs) thinks and feels a lot. Let's move on to our competition this week. I have three copies of Wish You Were Here by Carly Lane. As we get closer to Christmas, there are a lot of people we wish were near to us. And the title of this week's giveaway book captures that perfectly. Wish You Were Here by best-selling rural romance author. She has sold more than half a million books, Carly Lane. Here's a quick synopsis of the story. 
Sometimes the end of the road is just the beginning. As a kid brought up on a cattle property in the New England Tablelands, Reggie McLeod vows she's going to swap the country for city life as soon as she can, and she's followed her dream. Everything is going to plan, until one phone call rocks her world entirely. Reggie's parents have been badly injured in a car accident, and they need her help to run the farm while her brother builds up their recently launched farm stay business. It was only going to be for a couple of months, but that was almost three years ago. When Tim Warboy checks in to one of the cabins and extends his booking several times, all he seems to want is peace and quiet. But what is really going on under the surface? Is this new hope and purpose he's discovered going to last? Will Reggie and Tim manage to overcome the wounds of their pasts and build a new future? There you go. So we have three copies of Wish You Were Here by Carly Lane. Entries close on Monday the 19th of December. And all you need to do is go to writercentre.com.au slash win and follow the instructions to enter this giveaway. That's writercentre.com.au slash win. And now, are you ready for the word of the week? The word of the week is cryptozoology. It's not uh, about Bitcoin and animals. It is the study of animals whose existence is disputed, such as the Loch Ness Monster or Bigfoot or the Yeti. And those animals, or rather those disputed creatures, are called cryptids. If you want to go down a bizarre rabbit hole, look up lists of cryptids. There sure are a lot of lake monsters all over the world. I guess lakes can be dark and mysterious places where monsters might be found. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our self-paced course, Fiction Essentials Characters, takes one of the key components of any story and helps you develop not only the main players, but your entire cast of characters. You'll discover how to seamlessly merge plot and structure, create narrative tension, shape scenes, and create believable dialogue, all with strong characters that your readers can connect with. You can even start with just a character idea and nothing else. And this course will provide you with the steps and exercises to create your entire story idea. Equally, if you have a story that's in need of some original characters, you'll be able to build them here too. Plus, because this is one of our online self-paced courses, you'll enjoy instant access and can learn at your own pace with 12 months access to all course materials. You can find out more at writercentre.com.au slash characters. That's writercentre.com.au slash characters. Now let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Belinda Morell is author of 36 books and her latest is the middle grade novel The Silver Sea. She has worked as a travel writer, a journalist, public relations consultant, but has now been a full-time author for many years. She's known for her fantasy adventure series, The Sun Sword Trilogy, her time slip adventures for slightly older readers and for younger readers, her beautiful Lulu Bell and Pippa's Island series. Let's have a chat with Belinda Morell. Thank you so much for joining us today, Belinda. Oh, thank you so much, Valerie, for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. Oh, your latest book is The Silver Sea, but it's actually 
the billionth book that you've written. So I'm so interested to talk about your whole author career and how you've navigated it and so on. But first, let's tell listeners who haven't got their hands on a copy yet, yet of The Silver Sea what it's about. So The Silver Sea is the second book in my Tuscan series. So it's set in this magical world. So it's about a girl called Sophie, an Australian girl who goes to England to stay with her nana. And while she's there, she accidentally stumbles through this magical portal into another land, the land of Tuskia. And Tuskia is a land of magic, mystery, wonder, flying horses and talking cats and mischievous creatures, but also danger um, and evil perils. So Sophie has to find all her courage to set off on this dangerous quest in the land of Tuskia and the Silver Sea. She goes back and sets off on another dangerous quest to save her grandmother. How fantastic. And what age group do you would you say this is for? Well, it's definitely middle grade. So it's for sort of year five, year six, like sort of 10 to 12 year olds mainly. But of course, um, really good readers can read it younger. And it and older readers read it right up into high school, but that's the core age. I love the idea that this magical world of Tuskia is actually, well, it's a magical world, but it has it draws a lot of inspiration from the Renaissance in, in Italy, which is one of my absolute favourite periods and places in history. Why did you pick that as a source of inspiration? Oh, it started about five years ago. I was on holiday with my family in Italy and we had five weeks in Italy over the Christmas holidays and I was looking for inspiration for a new book and we were in Rome and we're walking the cobbled streets of Trastevere and we look up and I see this little street sign that says Vicolo de Mazzamarelli and I said to my kids, oh, look, that little alleyway is named after us, the Morel family or the Morelli family and my kids laughed and said, I don't think so, Mum. But being an author or a writer, I'm just endlessly curious. So I had to know what is a Mazzamarelli and why was this little alleyway called Vicolo de Mazzamarelli? So I Googled it and discovered that Mazzamarelli are these little Italian goblins, these little magical folk. And apparently there was a palazzo on this spot and it was haunted by a tribe of really naughty, mischievous Mazzamarelli that would come out and then eat all the cake and drink all the milk and make noise at night and wake everyone up and play tricks on people. And so I just thought, oh, my goodness, I have never heard of Mazzamarelli and I have to write a book with these little mischievous creatures in it. And that brought me into the whole folklore of Italy and the Italian Renaissance history, which I adore like you. And so that's what started it off. It was just this little chance encounter with Vicolo de Mazzamarelli and discovering that these little creatures are just adorable, mischievous tricksters. And um, and so I drew a lot on the history of Italian Renaissance and it, some of the characters are inspired by real historical people so and Italian fairy tales are just so awesome so that's what started it off. Did you know it was going to be a series at that point? No no I actually just thought The Golden Tower would be a, a one-off standalone book and that's how I pitched it to my publisher and she fell in love with the idea as well and especially having the talking cats and the flying horses um and then after I um, had written it and the first book came out, I'd spent that whole time living in that world and I thought, oh, I wonder if Sophie could go back and what would her next adventure be? And I started playing around with these ideas and when The Golden Tower came out, it did really well and my publisher rang me up and said, Belinda, Belinda, can you get me a pitch for a second book? And um, which I she gave me no time to do it. So luckily I'd been daydreaming. And, uh, and then she said, right, we want a second book and we want it to come out as quickly as possible. So she luckily it was lockdown <laughs> so I spent the whole of lockdown last year immersed in the land of Tuscary again which was so wonderful 
Wow. Now, when you are creating a fantastical world, you need to make sure that it is believable, but it also needs to be consistent. Yes. So in terms of your world building, to make sure that you were navigating your characters through the right kinds of geographic and environmental situations, do you have any kind of dossier or some kind of bible or something that helps you with that world building oh absolutely well the, the first thing that i decided i had to do was to go back to italy of course <laughs> so back two years later with my family and we we stayed in a golden tower in Luca, a medieval tower that was a thousand years old. And we walked the we walked the the valleys and we walked the the landscape. And then we stayed in a beautiful castello outside Florence that had another golden tower. So that we had that sense of really living in the places. And I write I write really detailed travel journals when I'm traveling so that I can draw back on the smells, the sounds, the tastes, the food, the <laughs> the the, the, the architecture. And um, then I have vision boards that I make, which are just, um, I get things off the internet, which are beautiful photographs of Tuscan landscape or beautiful architecture, the clothing, the Renaissance clothing, the food. And I just build files. I have, um, you know, folders where I photocopy stuff and whack it in there. I have these beautiful PowerPoint um, and and um, Pinterest, you know, I use a lot of Pinterest as well. So I've got, I had literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of photos on Pinterest that I could go in there and just remind me of what things looked like. And yes, so yes, a lot of work went into the research, months and months and months for each of the books. Now, with um, I'd love to give listeners some context because now what number book is this really? It's like the billionth, right? It's not quite billionth, no, it's book number 36 so I've just wow. working on book number 37 now so yes um 30 my 36 book 35 of them for children and one adult nonfiction. so yes which is so when you you come from a family of writers yes I do um which so it's always been part of your growing up did you always know that you wanted to be a writer, though, when you were little? No. No, when I was young, um, I loved the idea of I loved writing. I always wrote, and so did my sister and my brother. Uh, my sister's Kate Forsyth and my brother, Nick Humphrey, is also a published author. Um, and we did it for fun. We just loved it. We used to write poems and plays and stories and novels. But I actually always wanted to be a vet like my father and look after animals. I'm a bit animal obsessed. And um, it wasn't until I was in year 12 and my principal said to me, Belinda, let's have a look at your marks. Yes, you're topping English. Yes, you're topping extension history and your chemistry ooh, and your physics ooh, and your failed maths. And so she suggested to me that perhaps I might not enjoy my life as a vet having to do all that chemistry and physics and maths. And so I switched and went to university and studied creative writing, literature and journalism. And so I've been working as a as a writer since I left uni at the age of 20. So, um, yeah, so I think that we just had a book mad family. So I think it was inevitable that that I would write. And then you uh, published your first series or you, you, your first book in your first series, yes. uh, the Sun Sword series. Yes. And that is also middle grade, right? Yes, exactly. And, and at that point, what, when did it occur to you, I want to do this full time, you know, because presumably you had some other day job. Yeah, so I was working as a, um, a freelance journalist and I'm a travel writer, so I used to write lots of travel articles and uh, and do all sorts of freelance writing when my kids were little. I had my own sort of freelance business 
And I wrote my first book for my three kids because they were mad keen readers like I was as a child. And then um, it took me two years to write my first book. And then I sent it off to Random House. And I had a call from Zoe Walton a few weeks later saying, we love it. You know, this looks like a trilogy. When can you get me the next book? And, and I hadn't started the next book, so I quickly typed up about 20 words and said, oh, yes, I've started book two. Yes, yes, of course I can get it to you soon. And um, and so, which was a big fib, but anyway, I just gave up my other job and focused on working full-time. And so I never thought that I would be a full-time children's author, but it just kind of happened that the, the first books did really well. And then Zoe said to me, oh, what's the next book going to be? And so it just, it rolled on from there. So I feel like I've been incredibly lucky um, in my career in that I have been a full-time children's author with working with the same amazing publishing team for 16 years. Wow. Yes. And so 37 Zoe, books la- later. Yes, exactly. So, um, and it's just been along the way, I've segued into doing slightly different things. So I'd, I've written junior fiction, I've written some picture books, um, some early chapter books and things like that just to keep it exciting, interesting and new challenges. And so with the was- exception of the nonfiction book yes. that you wrote with your sister, yes. Searching for Charlotte, which yes. is actually about your grandmother yes. who has a very literary history, the rest have been, um, as you say, children's, young adult, yes. you know, that kind of um, age group. Yes, absolutely. Why children? Why that age group? Um, I think I, as a mother, I started off writing for my three children and um, I think I wrote, started off writing what they love to read and also being aware of them as readers, seeing what was missing in the market. And I absolutely love writing for children because children are passionate about the books that they love. They don't give you, they don't give you any um, leeway. If they don't like it, they'll throw it away within a in a page or two, but if they love you, they will write to you and they will tell you how much they love that your books. They will write to you when you're 19 and tell you that your books have changed their life and have created the young adult that they've become. And I just love that idea that you're writing books that are, that can change the world because I know that's a really big statement, but I really believe that writing books for kids can shape the next generation and, and encourage them to think about the world and their place in it, which I think is is just a huge honour and just something that I don't take lightly. It's just amazing. Um, it's amazing. so true though, isn't it? You are absolutely shaped by the things that have had an impact mm-hmm. on you when you were a child, particularly, of course, the things that you read. So do you, um, some authors um, do a lot of school visits, school talks, yes. that sort of thing. Is that something that you do a lot of? Absolutely. I have just come off eight weeks of the new book being launched and also book week and the first book week we've had in three years. So I have done eight solid weeks of touring. I've been speaking probably six days a week for eight weeks. I've been to Outback Queensland. I've been to Melbourne. I've been to regional New South Wales. I think I've done 55 one-hour author talks in the last few weeks, as well as probably about 20 bookstore events, as well as library events, literary lunches with hundreds of kids. So I'm exhausted, but it's so <laughs> amazing. <laughs> now, once somebody becomes a children's author, author they realise that that is part of the gig and most of them absolutely embrace it. A lot of people, because I talk to a lot of aspiring children's authors mm. who haven't quite um, got published yet, don't it they're not it's like they're not even aware that this is something that children's authors do on a regular basis 
Did you know that you would be doing this when you first started children's writing? No, and if I had known, I might have been more terrified. <laughs> but um, no, I didn't. And I think possibly I was lucky because it's, it started gradually. And I remember when I had my first meeting with my very first publicist and she said, okay, well, this is part of the job. And I went, oh, really? Oh, gosh. And recently um, at the Kids and YA Festival, um, a publisher was saying to me that what they're looking for is what they call the golden trifecta. And it's an author who can write amazing books that obviously sell well, but they can also present really well and speak really well on podcasts, at school visits, at, at, at inter media interviews. And thirdly, that are absolute geniuses at social media. I'm thinking, my gosh, like this, it's such a huge ask, but that's what they're looking for. Yeah, that's so true these days. Now let's talk about your um, beautiful Lulu Bell series, it, which is younger than, yes, it is. It's you know, yes. yeah. well, what age group would you say that is? Well, it's sort of about six to eight or six to nine-year-olds and that's my top-selling series. It was, you know, it's been hugely, hugely um, popular and sold really well, which is, you know, was such a surprise and such a joy. And, oh, just I get all these gorgeous book week photographs of kids dressed up as Lulu Bell and they send me beautiful illustrations based on Serena's um, drawings. And so, yes, it's a so Lulu Bell is um, a series of 13 books and it's about a family that's growing up living in a vet hospital just like I was as a child. So it's about friends and family and animal adventures and Lulu Bell's the oldest one in the family just like I was and she's got a sweet and adorable little sister who looks very much like my sister Kate. <laughs> And a very naughty, naughty, naughty little brother called Gus, who's very much like my brother was as a child. <laughs> so very much inspired by my childhood. So obviously inspired by your childhood, but what made you wanted to write this series? Um, it was... Um, what made me want to write it? It was, um, I'd been writing for my own children a lot. And then I think it was, you know, my sister Kate had a younger daughter, Ella, and I can remember Ella saying, well, I, you know, what can I read? And um, so I think I must have started writing it for, for my niece, Ella, when she was quite young. And also it was this idea I'd told my children all these stories about the funny things that happened in the vet hospital when I was growing up and they'd always be asking me to tell these stories. And then Ella started asking um, for these stories. And I thought, oh, well, maybe maybe this would be a great idea for a story. And so I pitched the idea of four junior picture books to my publisher and she's going, oh, oh okay, let's give it a go. And then we, I think we were all surprised at how well they did. So it's four books and then it was six books and it was eight books and then 10 books. And so um, it ended up being 13 books in the series. And, and yeah, absolutely a gorgeous, just gorgeous, lovely, fun story. Oh, it's beautiful. I, yeah, it's so, so beautiful. But then something quite different, you write this time slip series. Yes. And for an older age group, what age group is that? And maybe you can describe what you, what the time slip series involved. Absolutely. Well, um, it, they're for older kids. So they're sort of like from 12 to 14-year-olds or slightly younger for very good readers. And I wrote these for my daughter, Emily. And when she was that age, I realised that she was reading all these books with her brothers and they all had male protagonists. So she was reading Percy Jackson, Harry Potter, Cherub series, all of those books all had a boy as the main character. But she was also reading some very, very old classic books that had girls as main characters like Anne of Green Gables and Little Women and all of those books. And I thought, hang on, there's something wrong about this. Like why isn't my daughter 
finding books, and this was a few years ago, where there are strong girl protagonists that she can aspire to be like. So that was the first idea I had was writing books that I thought my daughter would love. So I wanted to combine that classic feeling of, of some of the older books together with a modern protagonist. So time slip, of course. And so I wrote The Locket of Dreams, which was also inspired by a story my grandmother told me when I was a little girl about how her grandmother came out to Australia from Scotland. And it was a very romantic tale. So I sort of wound together this idea of time slip in a modern character, finding an old piece of jewellery that was a link to the character that lived in the past. And my gosh, when that book came out, I suddenly got this flood of letters from all these readers saying, oh, Belinda, please, please, please write more books like this. I love it. And um, so I think of all the books I've written, the time slip ones are the ones I get the most passionate love letters from kids, from readers, mostly girls, of course. Um, and it was this idea of just um, creating, which of course lots of other people have done now, but back then when I first started writing them, there weren't many um, many books that had girls as the strong, brave, bold, fearless, feisty main character. So when you're writing a time slip, you have your, well, by definition, you yes. have um, dual narratives. Yes, so in terms of planning that, is that like quite difficult? <laughs> yeah, it is. And there's masses of research because they're all set in different historical periods, whether it's 1850s Scotland or the, the Ivory Rose is set in 1895 in Annandale. It's just before Federation or the, the Forgotten Pearl is set up in Darwin during the Second World War. So lots, months and months of research and then planning and plotting the stories out, the narrative arcs, the modern day, and then the, the historical section and then weaving them together. And um, so, yes, that's really quite tricky and and working out a segue that something that links between the the past and the present and yeah so but I love the loved the challenge of writing those sorts of books it was just you know I adore those books they're just yes my favorite now, obviously when you've written 37 books we can't talk about them all because there simply isn't enough time <laughs> so let's fast forward to today yes. you've also got the Pippa's Island series yes. you've got the Aussie Kids series yes. I've already mentioned you wrote Searching for Charlotte with your sister what does your year look like in terms Crazy. of if, <laughs> like, Crazy. do you generally have some kind of yes. get rid of COVID and yes. do you generally have some kind of plan or schedule that you typically yes. adhere to to get everything done? Absolutely. So I have a sort of, you know, a daily schedule and a weekly schedule, but my year, I tend to have blocks of time. So book week term, which is this term now, that sort of August so July, August, September is always filled with lots and lots of school visits and literary events and festivals and things. So normally I don't try to write in that time. And then if I have a new book coming out, I might go on tour as well, you know, and that might be four weeks or six weeks of marketing. And then, then I block out masses of time where I just go, okay, well, to write that book, I need to set myself goals. So I normally say, okay, I'll try and set myself a goal of a thousand words a day, 5,000 words a week, 20,000 words a month, and try to, you know, that's three months to write a 65,000-word book, which obviously takes longer, and then there's the editing and the research on either end. So I plan out the year that way and give myself deadlines. So I have to finish the research on a certain day, otherwise the book will never get written. And it's so much fun researching that I could spend months down those rabbit holes. So um, then I just I, I really plan it out very, very thoroughly and have these deadlines. 
and I pitch to my publisher based on a synopsis and maybe some early chapters. So I have to, um, she gives me a deadline and then I just work my butt off to get it done and, um, and get it to her on time. So you sound pretty organised. With your goal of a 1,000 words a day, what does your writing day look like? Like how many hours do you typically write for or aim to write for and do you have any writing rituals or, you know, some people have to go for a walk in the morning or go to get their coffee, that sort of thing. What's your day look like? Um, well, my kids, when my kids were younger, I used to write between nine and three. So I, you know, get them ready, drop them at school, race home, grab a coffee and write my little heart out till I had to remember to set the alarm to go and pick them up from school. And then I might sneak some more in in the evening. Um, But now that they're older, I don't have to do that so much. So I tend to just um, get up. I take my dog for a walk along the beach, clear my head, think about the what I'd like to do that day, have a plan, come back, make a coffee, sit down and work. And then normally my husband comes kind of like trying to entice me out at nighttime going, you know, is, are we having dinner tonight? Uh, um, you know, do we have any clean undies? It's those sorts of things. So I can get sort of very um, completely hyper-focused and then it's very hard for me to remember about the real world. So, um, yeah, so I do. T- <laughs> I'm not a fast writer. It's just that I tend to spend a lot of time at my desk and if as a deadline's coming up, I probably w- would work six or seven days a week and I'd probably write for 12 hours a day to get that deadline met um, and then have to try and give myself time off afterwards to, you know. And when you say you um, write a synopsis and that's what your publisher basically approves and says go ahead or not, so does that mean you do know what's going to happen in your books? Yes, absolutely. Um, So the first synopsis, well, I, I normally pitch to her, it might pitch to her two or three ideas and so they're not completely very detailed at that point but I have they have a beginning a middle and end they have a set of characters they have a a setting that I'm very clear on and I know what's going to happen what the key problems are um, and how it's going to end and um, and then when we go through those ideas there'll probably be one that stands out and she'll say yes let's go with that one and then I take it away and I develop that further so I might do chapter plans and a really more very quite detailed I know for the golden tower my synopsis that I pitched her was like six or seven thousand words so it's like ten percent of a book it was very detailed um and um and then then we give short blurbs for her to take to the acquisitions meeting so um so it's sort of actually probably about three sets of a very brief synopsis, uh, you know, a, a one or two page synopsis, and then a really, really, really detailed synopsis. So she knows how it's all coming together. You actually sound really organized that I'm surprised that aren't clean undies in the house. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm actually joking because normally my kids do have clean undies, but it's just kind of <laughs> that into the crack of the days. All right. So with the Silver Sea then, yes. now that this is out into the world, you say that you are writing book number 37. Is this the next one? No, I'm not going to write the next one at the moment. Um, I'm, I'd actually already pitched an idea to my publisher, which was another junior fiction series, so about the same age range as Lulubel. And um, and it was an idea that I had been playing around with, and so we decided that would be the next project. And also I've had really three, really, three or four really intense years with Searching for Charlotte. It was such a huge project. Um, that took two years to research and write. And then The Golden Town, The Silver Sea are quite large um, books, like they're about between 65 and 70,000 words. 
and took, you know, a lot of research to write. So I thought it might be nice to just change and have a, a change of pace and write something that was younger and fun, really fun and magical and, um, and, and, and shorter. So that's my next project. Oh, how exciting. How ex- That's fantastic. Well, congratulations on The Silver Sea. Um, I, people are going to absolutely love it. What a fantastic world. What great characters, you know, with Sophie and her family and her friends and all of that. Let's end with what are your, t- I usually ask what your top three writing tips are, but because you really focus on children and teenagers, yes, I'd like to ask you what are your top three tips on really connecting with a children's audience and making sure you are telling stories that really resonate with them? Oh, I think that's really important. I'd say the most important ingredients for me for a middle grade book, for example, would be first of all, this idea of friendship. Kids are just love great friendships. So having characters that your readers are really going to fall in love with and perhaps um, aspirational characters as well, slightly older, smarter, braver, bolder than your reader so that they've got something to look up to and aim to be like, so characters you fall in love with. Um, I'd say the second thing was also like having an antagonist, like a villain that you love to hate and, and making sure that they're really believable and authentic, that you can understand their motivations too, that they're quite complex villains. Um, I think a really, really important um, tip for writing middle grade is pacing and adventure. So um, a lot of the manuscripts I read from aspiring writers, they're just a bit slow and they've got perhaps beautiful lyrical language or they've got this lovely, amazing backstory or they've got all this dialogue. But with kids, you need to keep the pace moving quite quickly. You need to jump into the action and just keep that pace going. So I think pacing and adventure is really, really important. And I'd also imagine adding in a bit of... um, humour to make kids laugh because I think lots of kids love books that make them laugh and that are really entertaining and exciting and also um, that idea of magic, enchantment, um, creating a world that you just want to escape into. So they're, they're some of my top tips for writing children's books is those ingredients I think are absolutely crucial. Absolutely fantastic. And on that note, thank you so much for joining us today, Belinda. Oh, Valerie, thank you so much. It's been a delight to chat with you and it's just been amazing. So thank you very much for having me. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Do you want to write for children? Would you like to create characters and stories that kids will love? Our course in writing children's novels is the perfect way to start your journey towards becoming a children's author. This course focuses on writing for middle grade, that's 8 to 13 year olds. You'll discover how to find your voice, understand the market, take your characters and your readers on epic adventures and create a blueprint for succeeding as a writer. You'll also enjoy the convenience of learning online with your very own tutor providing direct feedback on your writing. You can find out more at writerscentercomau slash children. That's writercentercomau slash children. Let's move on to a fun fact that I have for you. You might have heard that a group of owls is called a parliament of owls and a group of starlings is a murmuration. But many of these words, which are called collective nouns, actually started as kinds of jokes or fanciful inventions. According to the Macquarie Dictionary, a number of medieval sources provided lists of collective nouns for various animals and birds, purportedly as technical hunting terms 
although clearly fanciful in origin. Whether these terms were ever used by hunters is doubtful, but a few have in the end become a part of the standard English vocabulary, and scholars from the 19th century onwards have been diligent in reproducing these medieval lists with greater and sometimes less accuracy, so that many of the terms today still known as the proper term for a group of some stated animal or bird, even though their use outside this limited domain is virtually non-existent. That's from the Macquarie Dictionary. So it's a bit like how these days something that starts as a meme or a joke on the internet gradually becomes part of popular culture and normalised. Some other fun collective nouns, which may or may not be entirely accurate, are a clouder of cats, clouder, a business of ferrets, a knot, yes, a knot of frogs, and do you know what jellyfish are? A smack of jellyfish. There you go. All right, this brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. And if you have 30 seconds to leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice, that would be great. I'd really be grateful because it certainly helps us in the rankings. Feel free to connect with me on social media. I'm at Valerie Koo on Twitter and Instagram. And of course, make sure you check out the Facebook group. Um, it's just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. It's um, free to join and some great conversations about the world of writing and reading happening in there. You can also check out my other life. I lead a double life as a visual artist at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. And I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.